1: Welcome to a Narcissist Apocalypse, a podcast that gives a voice to narcissistic abuse survivors. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad. And thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Generally speaking, a narcissist is a person who has an excessive sense of how important they are. They demand and expect to be admired and praised by others and are limited in their capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. And guess what? Not all narcissists are made equal. Yes, that is true. Narcissism is a character trait that exists on a spectrum. A small amount of narcissism is healthy, and a person with an unhealthy level of narcissism may be called a narcissist. At extreme levels, it may be diagnosed as a narcissistic personality disorder. However, for the purposes of this podcast, a narcissist is a person who exhibits narcissistic traits and or a consistent pattern of maladaptive narcissistic behaviors, regardless of whether they meet the diagnostic criterion in the latest version of the DSM manual or have a formal diagnosis. So a person may be referred to as a narcissist on this podcast, even if it is more likely that they have another cluster B personality disorder, such as borderline histrionic or antisocial personality disorder as long as they exhibit narcissistic traits or behaviors and now with all that out of the way my voice cracked a little bit right there with all that out of the way let me tell you that we have a survivor on this episode named jenny and we will get to her interview in a couple of minutes but first i just want to thank everyone in the narcissist apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email instagram facebook and And Twitter, our Facebook group is really something these days To all you folks that are hanging out in our Facebook group At facebook.com slash group slash Narcissist Apocalypse Hello, and thanks for participating Thanks for joining, it's been a wonderful experience so far Everyone is super helpful on there So big thanks to everyone on there And a reminder, if you haven't left us a review yet On whatever podcast service you use Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, etc. etc. Leave us a five-star written review if you can. If you can't, just leave us a five-star review. You don't have to leave like, a, a written one at all. It helps us out with the rankings. When it comes to the rankings part of everything, more people listen to the show, more people join the community, more people help each other out. All right. Now, once again, I have to put a bit of a moratorium on doing recordings because my vetting call and recording call schedule is already booked up almost to the end of November. And so if you still want to share your story, do so. I can't make any promises uh, when it comes to when we'll end up recording. Not every episode makes it, w- makes it the air or works out for various reasons. So the quickest way to be part of our show, though, is for our episode where we read a letter to a narcissist. It's a letters to a narcissist episode, and to be part of that episode, we have a voicemail recorder on our website, NarcissistApocalypse.com. On the right side of the page, there's a floating button. It's hard to miss. It says, send voicemail. You press that button and you record. It records up to five minutes. You can record once. You can record twice, three times, as many times as you need. We're accumulating these letters to have a volume two of our letters to a narcissist episode. So keep on sending those in. If you want your letter to be shared but don't want to read it yourself, Send us an email so either myself or my old pal Melissa can read it at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. And in the subject line, put letters to your narcissist. What else is going on? Our first fundraiser for Layla is a quarter of the way funded. So thanks to everyone that supported our first fundraising endeavor. A big shout out to Big R who donated the other day. Uh, Layla was our guest from our July 22nd episode. If you haven't listened to that episode, Layla was married to a police officer who used his power in standing in society to abuse her with no fear of repercussion. And Layla's trauma runs deep. So we are trying to get her the trauma therapy for a year that she needs. So I'm reaching out to everyone in our community to help raise enough money to get Layla that therapy. She deserves it. So go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, click on the fundraiser section. You'll see the little blurb there about Layla. Let's help change Layla's life. And before we get started, usually I get to the part where I talk about what I've done socially this week. And I've only done one thing, really. I went to a movie with my mother, my mother and I saw Judy. That's my imitation of my mother. It sounds nothing lighter like her. Uh, Judy. It's the story of Judy Garland's life. Great movie to see with your mom. Very sad movie, though. Like very super sad. Renee Zellweger was superb. She was fantastic. I think she's going to win best actress. I'm a big movie fan. Uh, she she really was fantastic. It's one of those roles where the person is playing a real person that existed and sometimes you see an imitation and sometimes you see real acting and in this one she got really into the role it wasn't an imitation she was fantastic and i recommend everyone seeing it there's some really touching parts in it but just a real sad life that she lived so enough with my movies (laughs) and this weekend well by the time this airs i would have already happened i'm going to visit friends up north And uh, their kids will be there. I'm going with another couple and their kids. It'll be six kids in total. We're going to have fun in nature. And we're all just going to catch up and have a good time. And I'm not going to do any work. I'm not going to touch anything with this podcast. I may answer some emails, but I'll try and keep that limited. And it'll just be some general silliness all around. But now, here is my conversation with Jenny. And I will check back with you. When it is all over. So thank you to everyone who showed up for this episode. On this episode, with me right now, I have Jenny. How are you, Jenny? I'm good. So How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. It is a Saturday morning. Uh, I got the time screwed up. Of when I was supposed to call you, I called you an hour earlier. Uh, no one answered that's when I checked uh the different the time difference between where we live and I realized I screwed up. I took a half hour nap <laughs> in be, uh, in between and rested up. I needed that half hour and now <laughs> we are here, and I am now just going to get out of your way to let you tell your story
0: okay um, well, first, I just had to say I was just listening to your episode this is not part of my story but i just wanted to tell you the story i was listening to your episode about um ross geller being a narcissist and in it you happen to mention one of my least favorite narcissists ever which is billy corgan um and we have a story in my town about him that i just wanted to share with you because i think you'd probably find it amusing oh go for it um Um, some point in the nineties before smashing pumpkins got really big, but when their like star was on the rise, it came and did an in store at our local, um, independent record store. And he, they were big enough at the time that Billy made them do all kinds of things to accommodate him. Um, and the most, I don't know what they all were, but the most memorable one was that that store has their bathrooms kind of right in the middle of the front of the store. And if you go into the bathroom, everybody can see you. So, and I don't know if this is something he did everywhere he went, but he made them like before the show, he made them set up this little walkway where they moved all of the fixtures in the store that had all of the like CDs and stuff, the displays. He made them move them all into make this like closed walkway so that he could walk from like where the stage was set up to the bathroom where nobody could see him. Although you could still see him because you could see his head over the fixtures, but he, he made them do that. And there were some other things too, but everybody who worked there at the time referred to it as the day Billy Corgan came to town and they still talk about it. And I just think that's the funniest thing ever. Well, Billy Corgan. Oh, I just wanted to share that with you. That
1: was probably the album "Gish." Probably came out before "Siamese Dream." Mm-hmm. Uh, he still had. I
0: think it was before "Siamese Dream." Yeah, yeah.
1: he still had uh, somewhat a full head of hair, and uh, Billy Corgan is a strange character. Uh, you know, he tried to take credit for mm-hmm. writing uh, Courtney Love's uh, album with Whole. Uh, I think what was it called? Mm-hmm. Celebrity something. Uh, he celebrity he, so yeah, yeah. he tried to take credit for writing that and she's come out and said, you only wrote like this little tiny thing. Um, and just one of those guys, his bandmates didn't talk to him for 20 years before they got back together. So a lot of issues <laughs> going on with them, but somehow they resolved anything. I don't know if he's been humbled since then or, or he's learned lessons, but somehow they're all back together and on the road. I've seen, I've, I've seen, I've seen them in concert. Yeah. I have seen them in concert. I saw them in concert in 1993 mm. or 94. His voice doesn't carry well. Mm. So my friend wanted to go actually last week because they were in town here. And I said, no, uh-huh. uh, his, I know his voice doesn't <laughs> carry well. I'm sure it doesn't carry better 20 years later.
0: No. So,
1: so that's my Billy Corgan <laughs> story. Anyway, tell your, <laughs> let's, let's tell your story. Let's go. Let's go. Thank you, by the way.
0: Um, thank you. Um, well, I wanted to talk about my dad. I was raised by a narcissistic dad, um, who also had some, he had some combination of narcissistic personality disorder and also, um, borderline personality disorder. And I always have to think about that before I say it, because the words that want to come out of my mouth are always bipolar, but that is not borderline. Um, and just some background I, my parent, I'm an only child and I'm, I'm trying to talk slow, but I think I'm talking too fast. Um, I'm an only child and my parents were married for about 15 years before they had me. So they had time to like build up their whole relationship of sort of like the narcissist and then the sort of codependent enabler, um, which is my mom. And so they didn't have me until they were in their mid thirties. And as soon as I was born, my dad quit his job. And so my mom basically had to be kind of the, the sole breadwinner for a while. Um, and she's a hairdresser. And so when I was a kid, she was always working. She was, she worked on weekends and she worked on, uh, evenings. So it was always just me and my dad. Um, and he sort of, he had a really messed up childhood, so he kind of, it feels like, when I think back about it now, he sort of saw me as some kind of um answer to all of his problems. I was somehow, like, raising me was going to sort of make up for this messed up childhood that he'd had, and he saw himself as this, like, perfect super parent, probably because he was a narcissist, Um, but, you know, he never read any kind of Uh, child rearing books or anything, because he thought he was just naturally good at everything like a narcissist. Um, But he also had really unstable emotions, which is like the borderline coming in. He had basically no equilibrium. Um, So he was always had this like blanket anxiety, which I think is probably just um, hypervigilance from that he grew up with from being a kid because his parents were really abusive. And I know about the hypervigilance because I developed that too. Um, and I didn't get rid of that as an adult until I did EMDR when I was in my late thirties um, or actually just within the past couple of years. But when I was growing up, I spent all of my time with him when I was really little and because he was so emotionally unstable, he couldn't tolerate me having any emotions and, and my mom either, but I just remember like my first, one of my earliest memories was I was crying about something and I was really little and he pushed me in front of the mirror and then started laughing at me. And he had this really high pitched, ridiculing, like hysterical sounding laugh. And he would say, look how ridiculous you look. (laughs) He, 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 um, And he would do that every time I cried. So, and sometimes he would get out a camera and take pictures of me and then show them to me later. So I learned really young never to cry. I still can't cry like in front of people. Um, so, I mean, if you can just imagine being a little kid and that's, that's your parent that you spend all of your time with, it kind of, uh, messes you up. Um, and then when I got into preschool, I had some behavioral problems, which I can't imagine why, um, with this being, you know, the person I spent all of my time with, but I got in trouble a lot. And every time I got in trouble... It was like it was the end of the world. And I would get in trouble at preschool for whatever things little kids probably get in trouble for. It's probably totally normal. I don't know. I'm an only child, so I didn't have any other um, any other things to go on. But every time I got in trouble at school, I would get in trouble at home, and then my, my dad would just have, like, this complete meltdown, um, and he... I don't know. It would just make him lose his shit because I wasn't like this perfect child because he expected me to be this perfect child all of the time. And to, you know, I guess because he was a narcissist, he thought that I was um, an extension of him. So he always thought that whatever he was thinking, I also thought. And he thought that all of my thoughts came from him. And if I had, if I did something bad or something that he didn't like, he wanted to know where I got that idea from because it had to have come from another person. It couldn't have come from me. It had to come from elsewhere. Um, so I would have to sit there. He would interrogate me and he would ask me, where did you get this idea? Why did you do this? And you know, you're a little kid. You're like, I don't know. I just did. And he'd be like, no, that's not a good answer. Why did you do it? And no matter what I said, he would not accept it. So it was the eighties cause I was born in 1978. So I was a little kid. It was the early eighties. Um, materialism was really big and my dad really wanted people to know that he had money and that he was successful. So whenever he like introduced me to people or even told people that he had a daughter, he always told them that I was spoiled and that he spoiled me. And, and my mom did that too. They always talked about, Oh, we spoil her, blah, blah, blah. Um, so people, you know, people don't like a spoiled child. So before people even met me, like when they would sign me up for preschool, they would tell them that I was spoiled before I, before the people even met me. And I think that had somewhat of an effect on them not liking me before I even, you know, before I even got to know them, like the, the teachers at the preschool and stuff. Um, so that always followed me my whole life, the whole spoiled thing. And they always bought me a lot of stuff when I was a little kid and other kids hated me too because they thought I was spoiled. Other kids' parents hated me because they thought I was spoiled and it really sucked because um, that's still an assumption people make now. If I tell them I'm an only child, the first thing they say is, oh, so you were spoiled. And that basically is instantly like my, I don't know, my red flag that I, I, don't want to get to know that person better because that that's really triggering for me. It's
1: a big trigger for you.
0: Yeah. And it's weird because you can't, you know, when you go around saying, Oh, I, I grew up and I have this problem because my parents bought me all this stuff and I was spoiled. People don't really have a lot of sympathy for that. They're just like, Oh, Oh yeah. You poor baby. Well, I didn't have that stuff when I was a kid. I didn't have 3 million toys when I was a kid. We didn't have that. But, I mean, that was all I got from my parents. I didn't have any kind of emotional support. I wasn't allowed to express emotions. I wasn't allowed to express my thoughts and feelings because I always had to be, um, you know, and people who listen to this podcast will know what I mean. I always had to be reflecting whatever was going on with my dad. So if he was feeling, you know, bad or something, he wanted me to either, when I was little, he, he was hoping, he was always hoping that I was going to be doing something that would make him happy, that would get him out of it. Because, um, you know, people with those personality disorders have the external locus of control where they, you know, everything that they feel, they think comes from outside of them. So everything in my dad's world was he, he wanted it to make him feel better because he always was either feeling anxious or angry, or depressed, Um, so everything that he, like, encountered, whether he was watching TV, or eating something, it was always, he always expected it to, like, make him feel great, and improve everything for him, and then when it didn't, he would get really disappointed, and he would get really angry, Um, so, like, every day at dinner, my mom would work, 10 and 12 hour days. And then she would come home in the evening and she would still have to make dinner because my dad wouldn't, wouldn't do that because he was the man and that's the woman's job. Um, you know, cause he was, he was born in the forties. So he, he was really sexist. <laughs> um, so my mom would come home after she'd worked all day. Um, and my dad was always in and out of jobs all of the time throughout my entire childhood. um, because he he had a hard time working for other people um, because of the narcissism
1: what is temper so, would his temper get in the way like with other people would they kind of see it and then
0: well I don't know exactly I just my mom only just told me this a couple of weeks ago that um, she said that people didn't like him which is not a surprise to me because this is sad but I never liked him my whole life because he was just he was a jerk. He was a bully. And he, she said that when he was at work, he would just complain about everything all the time. He was a huge complainer. He had a really good job. The one that he quit right after I was born, he had a really good job at Hewlett Packard. And she said he couldn't advance anywhere in the company because nobody wanted him in their department because he was such a complainer. Um, and that, you know, if, if they think he complained when he was with them, they have no idea what he did when he was at home because every night at dinner, whatever my mom made, my dad would complain about it. It always didn't taste right. It didn't taste as good as the last time she made whatever that dish was, you know, and he would eventually half the time he would end up just like shoving it aside and being like, I can't eat this. This is, this is terrible. I can't eat this. You know, and he did that from the time I was a little kid. He was still doing it all the way up until, um, I mean, he passed away in April of this year and he would still do it all the way, you know, basically my entire life that I knew him, he would do that. And that was just, that was one of the most sort of, I think, damaging things that I had to witness when I was a kid. Um, it, it gave me like this weird performance anxiety. Um, you know, just to observe that. And it was never directed at me, but it was just, it was some of the worst like behavior modeling that a person can ever witness is in a family with a narcissist in it. Um, and my mom put up with it for 50 years, which I think is incredible. But, um, you know, he he was hypercritical about everything. So there was there was this thing with my mom's dinner, and what you always refer to as nitpicking, um, he did that to me all the time. Like, I couldn't even sit in a chair without him coming over and, like, just scrutinizing everything I did. He, My posture would be bad. He didn't like the way I was holding my hands because he, uh, you know, not surprisingly, he made people around him into nervous wrecks because he was always a nervous wreck or he he was always like directing some kind of like critical energy out at other people, or even just like talking about a third person who wasn't there, you know, he was always criticizing, but he, you know, he would come into the room and I'd be sitting there and I would have my hands clenched or something, or I would have my, my arms folded. And he would get, he would always come over and be like, why are you clenching your fists? You look tense. Stop being tense. Stop being tense. And he would like grab my arm and shake it and be like, Un- unfurl your fist, unfurl your fist. I mean, how does that not make you nervous? How can you not be nervous when somebody's doing that? He told me I breathed too loud. He was always nitpicking the way I ate. You know, just, I mean, everything like that. It, and when so. It, when it comes uh, up to
1: posture. Uh, A lot of people who have bad posture, people think it's, you know, just they're not walking properly, but a lot of people have bad posture. It's because they're beaten down by people and your body just takes over and hunches over because that's how you're actually feeling. And it's not really about sometimes, you know, I don't know how to stand up straight or I learned bad posture. Sometimes it's just the way you're feeling is the way you walk or the way you carry yourself. So uh, in your, in your situation, you know, you've been beaten down verbally from your, your dad. And if you did have bad posture, he was probably a big reason why you did.
0: Yeah. And I mean, for, I mean, he was exhausting for one thing and just, just having him be in the same room with you was exhausting. You always had to be paying attention to him. Um, You always had to be having a conversation with him because if you didn't have a conversation with him or weren't paying attention to him, he took it as um, an insult to him, Um, which that that wasn't something that I realized until I was a lot older. But, yeah, when I was a little kid, you know, I would always be, oh, there goes my dog. Be quiet. Um, (laughs) My, uh, now I can't remember what I was talking about. Oh, yeah. Well, I had bad posture because I had low self-esteem because he was always criticizing me, Um, you know. And then also he read psychology books all of the time because he claimed that he was trying to figure out what was wrong with him. But I think he just did it so he could mess with other people, frankly. Um, So he would tell me he would criticize all of these things about me. And then he would tell me, well, you have such low self-esteem. Why do you have such low self-esteem? Why don't you have more confidence? You know? So it's like, <laughs> I mean, you just, there's, there's nothing you could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of the other things that he always would tell me from the time I was a tiny child, like when I used to get in trouble all the time in, um, in preschool was that nobody liked me. So he would always tell me, you know, That was just the words he used. Nobody likes you. Nobody likes you. I don't know why, you know, and he would get all, it wasn't like he was saying it with concern. He was saying it out of this like exasperation, like how it um, reflected on him. Nobody likes you. Why, why, why doesn't anybody like you? You know, and I don't even think that wasn't even true. That was something his mom told him when he was a little kid. So I think he was just repeating that. But, um, you know, I had really bad social anxiety all my life because of that. And, um, you know, when I turned 21 and was able to go to the bar, um, that was like the only way that I could socialize with people was to drink. So that, you know, that, that turned into a whole, like, um, you know, when I was an adult, I couldn't socialize with people unless I was drunk.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that is not a good thing. So did um, you,
1: did you have addiction problems when you became 21 after yeah. that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was like a functioning alcoholic for 18 years, um, from the time I was 21. And before that I smoked pot, but once I, um, you know, once I turned 21 and it was easy to be able to just go out and buy alcohol, I, I switched over to that. Um, but yeah, then at some point when I was 39, my cousin, um, who was my dad's younger brother's son, he died at the age of 47 of cirrhosis of the liver um, because he was an alcoholic and that really hit me. And I didn't want that to be my fate as well. So I quit drinking at the age of 39, which was two years ago. So that's like my past now, but that's part of me.
1: And um, were but you, I still were, were now. You, oh, sorry. Were you able to quit uh, cold Turkey or did you go to meetings?
0: Yeah, no, I just, Quit cold turkey. Okay. I didn't go to meetings. Um, I did like smart, um, smart recovery, which is like an online kind of thing. I did that, but I never, I never went to meetings. I don't know. It's just like, I think probably still just the social anxiety thing. I didn't want to go out and I didn't like the whole th- the thought of like having to have a sponsor and having that much like constant contact with other people just made me cringe, but I was able to just quit. And I know most people don't, aren't able to do that. Um, but I just, it's like, I just decided, you know, it happened over a couple of months where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Cause you know, it turns into this thing where it's just like, um, a compulsion. It's not, you don't enjoy it. You don't really want to do it, but it's just what you do. So, you know, you're like, okay, so I'm going to buy this bottle of wine. I'm going to buy enough alcohol that, you know, and, yeah, I just decided I didn't want to do it anymore. So I just quit one day.
1: And I guess during that, during that time, uh, how were you functioning in the sense of uh, relationships with friends and uh, with, I guess, any romantic relationships? Or was it impossible during that time?
0: um, It was pretty much impossible. I still don't... um, I have, like, I have a lot less contact with people now than I did then. Well, actually, probably for about five years, even before I quit drinking, I kind of became a hermit, sort of. Um, And I didn't see that many people at all. Um, And then when I quit, that didn't really change. And, you know, just partly, I think, because of the social anxiety and partly because everybody I know, you know, because I wasn't a big drinker, everybody I know is a big drinker, and I don't want to try to hang out with them. It's too hard. You know, your relationship kind of change when you, when you quit your addiction. Um, so, I mean, now I still, I see people infrequently, but I, I mean, usually on a weekend, I'm just in my house watching Netflix or something like that. Um, but yeah, romantic relationships are really hard for me just because I can't, I can't, see them as anything other than somebody trying to control me or manipulate me um because when i was a kid my dad would always would always like tell me he loved me in this like really manipulative way to try to get me to do stuff like or i mean not do things but just like do what he wanted um like when i was in high school he always wanted to talk to me quote unquote about what I wanted to do for college, but quote unquote talking to me was really just him telling me like the, the limited amount of schools or programs that he was going to pay for me to, um, attend in college. And they were all, you know, they were all things that were like computer programming and stuff that I wasn't interested in, but that he felt would be something that would be, you know, able to get a good job in. Um, and basically, talking to me meant him uh, like kind of lecturing me and berating me until I agreed to do what he wanted and so he went during that um that basically started when I was fifteen, and it went all the way until I graduated from high school of him and he would get really exasperated like every single day he he changed his work schedule so that he got home from work. At the same time that I got home from school. So I would be home and he would be home. I couldn't get away from him. He was always in my face and he always wanted to talk to me about college. But it always just ended up with him basically yelling at me. Um, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't just do what he, what he wanted. I didn't just, you know, blindly do what he wanted, which is, you know, not what you, not what happens with a teenager really, but. Um, you know, what I wanted didn't matter. It was just all about him. And by, you know, frustrating him, I was just, I was just making him crazy, but he would always end it with, oh, but I love you. I only do this because I love you so much. And, you know, why can't you see that? And it was just so, it was just such bullshit, you know, if that's what he thinks love is, then I mean, no, <laughs> but I, I just have a hard time having a relationship now because of that. And, because when I was younger, um, I ended up dating a lot of narcissists because of that whole patterning. Um, so, it, yeah, you, I don't...
1: Do you also have uh, a lot. issues with perfectionism of sort?
0: Oh, my God, yes. It's funny you say that because from the time you contacted me and told me that you were going to be calling me today... I've been like rehearsing everything that I was going to say to you in my head, like just constantly. And like I woke up at three in the morning this morning and couldn't sleep because I was like, okay, I got to talk about this. I got to talk about this. I got to talk about this. I got, I got to get everything. I have to do it this way. It has to be like this. Um, yeah. And I, I definitely have perfectionism. Um, when I was little, my dad used to, you know, I, I, when I was in elementary school, I did a lot of different extracurricular activities. Um, but what would happen every single time is that I would go to maybe two or three lessons of whatever it was, whether it was a sport or, you know, some other activity. And my dad would, um, after like the second or third lesson, he would tell me, well, you know, I was watching you back there. And if you hear that noise in the background, that's my dog making weird little grumbling noises. Um, he would say, well, I was watching you back there and you just don't really seem interested. You don't seem like you're trying very hard and I can tell you're not very interested in it. So why don't we just take you out of this? You know, let's, let's not do this anymore. And I would just be like, okay, you know, cause it had happened, you know, at one point it had happened so many times I was used to it. And then he would go and tell my mother and everybody else that he could find to tell, because he always had to tell everybody everything that I did. Like, you know, like he was talking about me. Um, oh, well, Jen didn't want to continue in this thing. You know, it was her choice. She She's the one who wanted to stop. She wasn't really into it. She didn't really like it. When in reality, it was him because he had this weird, he had this weird idea that if you couldn't do something like almost perfectly after only trying it once or twice, then you were never going to be any good at it. You were a failure. There was no point in trying. Um, so I was never allowed to do anything that I had to struggle at. You know, I, w- I was never allowed to like do anything that I had to try because he, because he couldn't tolerate it for whatever. I don't know if it was because he thought I should be good at it or if because he thought that I wasn't trying you know, because if I had put any effort into it, I would be perfect at it after the second time I ever tried it. You know, which is I think what his his kind of thing was. Um, so that really bred the perfectionism thing into me too. And I always I had to learn to be really noncommittal about anything that I talked about with him because um, if I if I liked something, it was a guarantee that he would make me stop doing it. So if I really liked it, he would always make me stop doing it. He would decide that it was a worthless waste of time and he would make me stop doing it. Um but if but if I really hated it, he would make me keep doing it because he would tell me that um life isn't about doing things that you want, life isn't about being happy, life isn't about putting up with things you don't like to do and people that you don't like. Um so he would try to make me he would force me to do stuff that I hated and then he would not let me do things that I liked. So I always just was really noncommittal when he was like, Oh, do you like this or whatever? I would just be like, Oh yeah, whatever. I don't really, I don't really have an opinion about it. And then of course he would get mad at me for that. He'd be like, why are you being so noncommittal? You know, why are you such a, you're so spineless. I mean, there, there wasn't anything that I could do that he didn't criticize. It was always like damned if you do and damned if you don't. Was that
1: him. was that a projection in your opinion on his own life because it seems yes. like he was very non-committal with uh, you know work or did he have any friends?
0: He did um and yeah I do definitely think that was a projection. He did when when I was a kid we moved from the the place where my parents had lived for like 30 years when I was 14 we moved to the place where I live now. Yeah. Um, and I've resented it ever since (laughs) I'm not mature about it. I don't, I still hate living here, but, um, when I was a kid, they had lived in that same town for 30 years. So he did have friends back then. Um, I don't think very many, but he had a couple of friends and, but like his job situation, he, when I was a kid, he had every different job you could ever imagine. He sold insurance. He was a real estate agent. He was a technical writer. He did all of these different things, and nothing made him happy. Um, And so he was always telling me that, that life just wasn't about being happy and you couldn't do things that made you happy. And so whenever I found something that I liked, I think it made him jealous because by that point he had probably forgotten how to be happy. I don't know. But he was always really jealous of me. You know, like when I was little and he was telling everybody that I was spoiled, he was jealous of me at the same time because his parents never spoiled him. So he he resented me because he was giving me all these things that he never had when he was a kid. And, you know, he resented me at the same time that he was doing it. So that was really weird, too.
1: Yeah, it sounds like, you know, there is a lot of manipulation in the sense of, Uh, He's spoiling you and hating that he's uh, spoiling you or he's doing it just to, uh, just so he can say it, just so he has a complaint uh, about you. And then also when it comes to you know, when you wanted to, whatever school you wanted to go to, anything maybe that revolved around money, possibly. I'm just kind of going off here for a second. That there was always a a catch to it. And that catch, uh, you know, no matter what the catch was or what was going on, there was going to be a complaint following what was ever going to happen. That there was always going to be the shoe that was going to drop. You didn't know what it was. Even if you Mm -hmm. rejected the money or if you took the money or whatever was paid for or something, there was always something there, no matter what your answer was going to be, yes, I'll take it, no, I won't, he'll complain that you did, or he'll complain that you didn't, was that, is that fair to say? And
0: that, yeah, and it's funny that you say that, because when I, when I finally moved out of my parents' house, I was 22, um, I ended up going to college in the town where we live, because it was, It was impossible because no matter what, like when it came to the college thing, even when, um, you know, he would present me these like three options and it was always just like three or maybe four, three or four options. Well, you can do this, this, or this. And I like, I'm not interested in those. And he's like, well, you know, you freak out.
1: I have a question. I have a question for you. You were
0: spot on in your observation there.
1: My big question is what's your mother thinking yeah. of all of this the whole entire time? And what kind of conversations are you having with her about this, uh, you know, father situation, husband situation? And did that, did it frustrate you uh, if she wasn't helping out?
0: So my mom, oh my dog's barking again. My mom was not there a lot when I was a kid, like I said, um, cause she was always at work. She worked on Saturdays. She worked in the evenings um, uh, when I got older, it always seemed like, and it, this could just be my perception because my dad treated her, you know, the same way he treated me, but she was able to get away from him. Whereas I never could. Cause I was always stuck in the house with him. Um, she, it always felt to me like she was either like on his side or making excuses for him when he would, um, make me, sit in the kitchen on a stool for three hours while he lectured me about whatever his, his topic of choice was that day or interrogated me asking me, you know, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Um, She would always just like tell me not to upset him. Um, You know, and then when I, when I got older and I didn't live with them anymore, he and I would get into fights when I would come over to their house and he would get mad and kick me out of their house. And I would leave, and then she would come come running out the door chasing after me, don't leave, don't leave, oh, he didn't mean it, you know, come back in. And I always would, and I I shouldn't have, but um, because then I would have to sit there, and he would give me the silent treatment and glare at me for the rest of the time that I was there. Um, But I always really felt like she was on his side. Um, But, you know, I don't know what her exact reasoning is, I, I always feel like because um, she was sort of codependent with my dad, and he, you know, he was so needy that she gave him all of her attention. She, she sort of, um, this doesn't sound fair, but <laughs> it it always felt like she just treated me like I was so independent. Like from the time I was a little kid, that I was so independent and I didn't need her. Um, and she had a mother who was, uh, really dependent that she had to help with a lot of stuff. And then she had my dad and then she had her work and it, it always felt like she didn't have any time left over for me, you know, like, oh, my dad was taking care of me. So she, she didn't have to worry about it. Um, so now that he, he's gone, I've been able to, you know, spend more time talking to her and stuff. And she's told me things like she said that you know when I was a little kid I always wanted my parents to get a divorce because my dad was so mean um you know I didn't want to I didn't want to have to be around him because like I said he used to yell all the time he would explode in a rage about random stuff all the time so we definitely had the walking on eggshells thing in our house um and you know, by the time I was about six years old, I wanted to, my parents to get a divorce because I didn't like my dad. And that never changed my whole life. Um, but my mom told me that when she she did talk to a lawyer once about divorcing him, um, and the lawyer was an idiot, it sounds like to me. So the first thing he did after my mom left his office was he called my dad up and told him, oh, you know, you're finished, buddy. Your wife's going to divorce you. And my dad told my mom that that if she d- tried to divorce him, he was going to kidnap me and take me to South America or he was going to kill himself. So, you know, he put that on her and she, you know, couldn't handle that. So she stayed with him.
1: And your relationship with her oh, no. is pretty good right now. Yeah. As best and it can I have, be. Uh,
0: yeah, and I've told her just recently, I've told her a lot about, because she sort of, as the way my therapist put it, it seems like she had her head in the sand a lot of the time about, you know, the way my dad treated me. Um, <clears throat> so I've told her a lot about it now. And <laughs> one day she told me, well, you know, someday you're just going to have to forgive and forget. And I was like, No. That's not, that's not the right attitude. That's the, the, that's the problem that everybody has been having, you know, all throughout history about not getting over family trauma and stuff is that attitude. Um, but she's told me a lot more about my dad, like about how nobody used to like him and that thing about the divorce. But, and I've told her, you know, I really wish that you had been there more when I was a kid because I had basically the one of the worst models of behavior um teaching me how to be an adult that I was around all the time who also you know criticized me and terrorized me um you know and just you know cuz she's always telling me that she always expects the best out of people and thinks that people have good intentions and stuff like that and I just find that amazing because I don't feel that way because I was raised by this person who always told me that everybody was out to get me and who treated me like he was always out to get me. Um, You know, so she tells me that. And I'm just like, well, I I really wish that you had been around more when I was a kid, you know? And I, I know she, she also wishes that, but there, you can't go back now.
1: Mm -hmm. Does, does that, or does that re-trigger you in a way that, you know, there, that there's maybe not the apology in a sense that you wanted?
0: Um, yeah. And it's, it was worth um, like about a month ago, I was getting really upset about it and I was telling my therapist about it and she told me that um, she said, well, you know, your mom's not going to change. You can't change her. And maybe she's not the person that you should be talking to about this stuff. Um, And then I've, I've just recently, I've done some EMDR on some things. um, And I think that's really reduced the amount of how much that triggered me because um, I don't know if you've ever done EMDR, but it's, you know, you work on one scenario with it and then all of these other things that you would not ever expect to be related to it sort of, fall by the wayside, too, and, and don't bother you as much anymore. But I think just getting, just the fact that I got that off my chest, I, I really sort of laid into her one day, a couple of weeks ago, about all of the, the ways that I feel like that she failed me. <laughs> um, and just being able to say those things to her, finally, after 40 years, um, I feel a lot better now. Oh, stop barking, dog.
1: Did you finally feel like you <laughs> um, were heard?
0: Yeah. And yeah, and then, you know, her reaction, and I know she felt bad, um, you know, and I've asked her why, why she stayed with him. And sometimes she'll say, I don't know, but you know, I mean, it was just like the, their generation and everything.
1: Yeah. I I think, I think for, you know, people didn't get divorced from, uh, people that age your mom's probably what 70 plus years old yeah i think in that yeah, age like group, boomerade yeah i think that age group is the way they were raised a lot of the time they don't mm-hmm. understand well, she's they, catholic yeah they don't understand the they don't understand these things their emotional iq isn't as high uh, as people who are younger and it's just something mm-hmm. they may they i don't know if they can see it maybe some older people can but um, it, I think it might be tough for that uh, age range. They just, In a way, they just don't get it, and you won't get what you need to get from them. Uh, they're already at the certain yeah. age they are, and it, it's going to be – it, sometimes it's just too painful or very painful just to have those conversations because you might not get what you want out of them. Uh, so it, sometimes it's better mm-hmm. to not engage in them because it's just – well, it's just less painful.
0: Yeah, and it's like beating your head against a wall.
1: Yeah, it's, and, it's frustrating.
0: Um, yeah, and I mean, and she was raised Catholic. And, you know, in the old-fashioned, um, you know, Catholics don't get divorced. But, you know, her life story is um, different from a lot of people I know. She and her mother fled the Hungarian Revolution when she was 11, and they left everything behind. In Hungary, including her father, but he was an abusive drunk. Um, so she basically grew up without a father, and so maybe that was also part of her, you know. Because when I tell, whenever I try to tell her all of these things, she'll sometimes say, "Well, yeah, but I didn't even have a father growing up, and you did, um, you know, or at least for most of her growing up, you know, I didn't. I I grew up a lot of my life without a dad, and you had one." you know? And then also she'll, you know, sometimes I'll say, well, this happened to me and this happened to me. And she'll just be like, well, yeah, but look at my life. We left Hungary with nothing. We had nothing. We didn't have a home. We didn't know where we were going. We left our family behind. We had no possessions. So sometimes she does that and it's like, well, my, my hardship is, is worse than yours. You know, she, she does that. So sometimes that's also another reason why I, I can't really expect any, other kind of answer out of her
1: yeah there's no empathy where you might be able to say put yourself in her shoes and say i understand that was was bad she's not even doing that and you know that's not a conversation you can win or in a conversation where you can find any sort of understanding
0: no and i think it's like the same resentment that my dad had where i had all these things as a child that he didn't have you know that was it was the same for my mom too You know, I had all these things growing up that she didn't have. And so I think they both resented me for that, even though they wanted to give me that stuff. But at the same time, they resented me because, you know, like you said, we're human. And that's just you can't really always help that.
1: So but uh, two years ago, you quit drinking and. So, so then you, pr- for probably the first time in your life since you were 20, well, since you were 21, you had to deal with yourself for the first time in your life and probably deal mm-hmm. more with these issues uh, head on. How was that? And, you know, just to actually be sober and have the day-to-day of... Uh, living and listening to the voice inside your head telling you uh, that maybe just you know being a self-critic of yourself.
0: Hmm. Um. Well, I I think I had some learned helplessness. I mean, I know I did. Um, like for my whole life. So at, at that point, I was getting triggered by just about everything. Everything was triggering me. I would be at work and. When I get triggered, I don't get, um, when I get triggered, I get angry. It's like, you know, the, I guess probably like the, the rage from my dad, but when I get triggered, I get really angry and I get like heart palpitations and my head starts to swim and everything.
1: Is it internalized or exterior?
0: what do you, what do you mean?
1: Do you internalize, like you're like, getting angry inside, or do you verbalize it, uh, out, uh, like outward into the world?
0: Um, it's a little bit of both. Like the, when I have the feeling, I don't necessarily, I mean, I don't act on it or anything, but I, uh, <laughs> complain about things a lot. Like when I'm at work and stuff, so I'm just like, this is bullshit and, um, stuff like that. So yeah, it, my dad affected me in ways that I, Wish he didn't because that sounds exactly like him when I'm saying this, but um
1: but it's not like you're taking it, it out on mostly on like so on someone else
0: no, it's just like it would be this rage that would build up inside of me until I thought that my head was going to explode, so um you know that kept happening to me so i I got some medication from my doctor, and then I also went to see a therapist and started doing e m d r and I've been seeing the same therapist for almost two years. Um, and I've worked, I've gotten a lot past that, uh, like being triggered so much by everything. Um, I do still sometimes get irrationally angry about things, but um, it's, I've really been able to get past that. And that was one of the reasons that I drank was because everything triggered me all of the time because I, I worked for a long time with a guy who was a really, he was a narcissist and he really reminded me of my dad a lot. And having to be around him was triggering like every second of my day. And then he eventually got fired for being a racist, sexist jerk. Um, but I mean, that and that was a couple of years before I started drinking or stopped drinking. But yeah, just, I, it's like you find things to make you upset, you find things I don't know, well, I mean it's confirmation bias, so you know you just look for things to make you annoyed and pissed off mm-hmm. when you're in that state, and you know, and then there's the hypervigilance and just you're always on edge, and everything everybody does drives you crazy, and you're always irritated.
1: well, so, you were never just, allowed to have I've emotions through
0: therapy to get over that yes,
1: yeah, so you you were no. never allowed to have emotions, so. When you try to express emotions or deal with emotions, uh, it's very difficult because you're still stunted in your growth of how to deal with them uh, from when you were a child. You know, I know I get built up anger inside me. I don't Mm -hmm. know, I know sometimes. I don't know how to be angry. And when I do say like, you're allowed to be angry. And when I do show anger, it comes out terribly, uh, which is, um, (laughs) and then you're like, okay, that didn't go well. Uh, You know, it's for me, that's a big thing for me. How do you deal with anger when you kind of grew up where, uh, you know, everyone else in your family is able to express things and you're the person that's not really uh, the one that is rocking the boat kind of uh thing so for me it was always especially with mm-hmm. anger because you're not allowed to express like oh i'm sad or not that you're sad but like that you want uh you're not uh things aren't working out here and uh don't rock the boat and for me it was uh it was a big thing was anger and i really build up and it builds up and it builds up and for me that was always the most frustrating thing
0: mm-hmm. and i don't what know what would happen and
1: uh, what would happen um
0: yeah, like how would it release? How would you release
1: it? How that? would or it release? I what would, would just I, yeah. I don't know where I was going though. Uh I would just really get I you know, I would let things still slide. I would stew. I would start resenting people. They wouldn't know I was resenting certain things. They wouldn't, you know, no one would know mm-hmm. that these things were going on. I would keep on putting on kind of this face that like everything was good, yet I wouldn't have the proper conversation with people to tell them kind of what was going on, that, yes, this upset me, yes, this is upsetting to me, or what you said here I didn't like, I don't like how I was treated. For a long period of time, I did not know how to uh, deal with that. And then when I started to finally go to a therapist and work on these things, when I did want to deal with those things, at first I had to, you know, I had the ones where I I was like, ah, and I would, I would, I yelled and I didn't know how to deal with it. And that would, that would be like, what the hell, where did that come from? Because I would bottle it up <laughs> and now I had to learn, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I had one friend who uh, started renting from me and they moved in uh, to my place. And one day, mm-hmm. uh, uh, something happened and that person, uh, I got angry at that person. I didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. They knew I was angry and they said, are you upset? And I'm like, no. And I went upstairs to go back to sleep <laughs> because I was woken up in the middle of the night. And about five minutes later, I was in bed and I'm like, okay, you are angry. Why did you say the opposite? You can't go to sleep. So I went back downstairs And the person was sitting at the dining room table, and I said to this person, you're right, I was angry, and uh, this is what I was angry about. And thank you for actually uh, having this discussion with me, because this is actually what healthy release or discussion of anger is. And for me, that was the first time I actually had that, where the person didn't get upset that I was voicing Mm -hmm. my opinion And it Mm -hmm. felt really good. And that was my first step into realizing this is how you deal with anger. You don't go and stew. You might have to go think Mm -hmm. about what you want to say about it so you don't say the wrong thing. But within that moment, you know, you can step out of yourself, deal with what you internalize, you're internalizing, and then actually have the conversation. It might not happen that second, but it'll happen faster mm-hmm. than it was before. And it took me a long time uh, for me to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea where we went on your tangent. We were lost in your story and I apologize.
0: Oh, that's okay. Um, yeah, i I never, yeah, I think when I was growing up or even like as an adult, I always just think that if I express anger or yeah, annoyance with somebody or anything that I'm just going to get screamed at because that was what always happened when I was a kid.
1: Yeah. For me, my dad would always, for me, it was
0: explode and scream about things.
1: For me, it wasn't that for me, it was that I'd be uh, considered a bad person. So,
0: Oh yes. I have that too.
1: Yeah. So did you have a lot of guilt? Mm-hmm. I have that written down here. Do oh, you? Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh yeah. I wrote, cause I wrote down some things that I wanted to, to, talk about or like, so that I wouldn't forget. And one of them was feeling responsible for other people's feelings, which is something I still have to work on because, you know, living with a person who has borderline personality disorder, where everything that they are feeling and they have the most just intense mood swings all of the time and all of their, everything is caused by you. And especially like in my household, because I, I told you this before, and you said it would drive you crazy. Um, my dad was not like the typical narcissistic parent who only pays attention to you when they want something from you or you know when it serves them he He focused on me all of the time, everything that was going on all day long he was always focusing on me and and um, you know expecting me to help him, uh, feel better or, you know, wanting to control what I was doing or just, it didn't matter. Everything, everything all the time, he was always following me around. He was always focusing on me. So, you know, his, and his mood swings, you know, all figured into that. So I was always getting blamed. If he was feeling anxious, it was because of me. If he was angry, it was because of me. If he was sad, it was because of me. You know, and then he would expect me to somehow make him feel better, and then I would disappoint him in that, so then i I also had that burden to carry um when I was like in my early twenties, he had a heart attack, and the first thing he said when I walked into the hospital room was, "I had a heart attack because of you Ugh. because I was worried about you because he was still he was still stuck in this loop of, cause I hadn't finished college at this point because I had, I had started college and then dropped out because he was making me do some boring business or something that I wasn't interested in. So, you know, I went, I went for a while and I dropped out. And so at this point I was not going to college and I had no foreseeable plan for the future for finishing it. Cause I didn't finish college until I was 30. Um, But, yeah, he. the first thing he said and, like, the only thing that he wanted to talk about this whole visit when he was in the hospital after he had his heart attack was that it was my fault. He was worried about me, and I was the one who caused his heart attack. So, you know, I mean, that was just – that was basically our whole relationship. Mm -hmm. And whenever something happened to me, it happened to him and only him. Like, when I was four, I had a seizure. Um because I had a fever and my dad was the person who was there with me. Um, so I had this seizure, which would have been, I think, unavoidable. Um, but he blamed himself and then like for the rest of my life, he would always bring it up and it was like, it only happened to him. It didn't happen to me. It didn't happen to my mom. It only happened to him. And then he had to, he had to deal with all this guilt of it and all of this other stuff, you know, and it just like listening to him talk about it was just so gross because he always talked about like, it only happened to him. And so I always have felt responsible for other people's feelings. Um, And, and plus he also like, along with his thing that he would always tell me about how people didn't like me, there was always this focus on like people, how people perceived me and how people perceived him and you know, how you look to other people for a narcissist is far more important than, you know, how you look to yourself because they don't have that inner self or, you know, however that works. Um, but I was always, I was always so concerned about what other people thought about me. And so like feeling responsible for their feelings went along with that. So I work with a guy who's really moody and, gets upset over the littlest thing sometimes and then i always even now i still sometimes feel guilty and i'm like oh well he he's mad he's mad at me you know i did something that made him have this mood swing which is ridiculous but you know i i don't know if that'll ever go away
1: mhm so you're you're making assumptions of what other people might be thinking of you
0: mhm yeah and like and also feeling like I somehow control how they feel because that was that was just what was you know taught to me by my dad, which was that you know whatever he was feeling was because of me. So if he was anxious, it was because of me, you know, or whatever. So yeah, and I mean that's ridiculous. You can't control other people's thoughts and feelings, but you know.
1: So since I, you- I have
0: to tell myself that all of the time. I I don't control that person. I mean, that's narcissistic in itself to think that, but.
1: Well, no, you, you had a lot of things go on and you're kind of trained to be a specific way. Uh, so since your mm-hmm. dad has passed away, uh, how have you been, mm-hmm. been feeling since then? And in your healing process, I assume after he passed away, uh, what are some of the things that you've been working on with uh, your therapist to, uh, overcome some of the things that, uh, hinder you in your life?
0: Um, well, this, when he, when he passed away, it was the most relief and freedom I've ever felt in my entire life. Um, and I, I read other people who had, um, abusive or narcissistic parents had said the same thing, um, because I was always so concerned. It's weird because once I, you know, like once I became an adult, I was always just like, you know, on the surface, I was like, oh, I don't care what he thinks, but I always did. And I was always, I always cared what he thought of me. And then I was also like afraid of how he was going to react to things or how, um, how like conversations were going to go. So, I, I have to say that since he died, the only thing I've felt is relief and freedom. Um, I haven't really been sad. And I just recently realized, because and I've, I've been um, able to access things that I've never accessed before, um, like to work on in therapy. And one of them, I realized that I was afraid of him my whole life because when I was a little kid, he used to criticize me all the time. Um, And he always told me that nobody liked me. And then also he would erupt into a rage and scream about things all of the time. So I realized that I was basically afraid of him my whole life, but I could never admit it. Um, Either because, you know, that that whole thing of how children can't admit that their parent is the bad one. um, Because they have to believe that their parent is protecting them. So they take on all of the, the... you know, that they're the bad person or whatever. Um, so I used to like sublimate my fear of him and, and it, it became like a fear of the dark. So when I would go to sleep at night, I would have to have all of these like stuffed animals on my bed because they were going to protect me because I was afraid of the dark. Um, but I think really that was just all of the fear that was built up of, you know, when is, when is my dad going to yell at me or, you know, say something mean to me or, you know, whatever, laugh at me. Um, so just, I mean, and that's just recently that I realized that that I was afraid of him my whole life. And that was part of when he died, I, I was relieved because I didn't have to feel that fear anymore because um, yeah, then once I was an adult, I was just afraid of how he, he was going to shit on anything that I ever liked. Or anything that I said, because he would always disagree with everything I ever said. When I, like, when I went over to their house for dinner, you know, and I was always, he didn't really yell anymore once I became like a teenager. He would just always threaten to yell, and then once I became an adult and didn't, you know, didn't live in their house, I was still just afraid of him criticizing me and disagreeing with me. So
1: it sounds. I, mean, it sounds, I
0: have relief from that, and then
1: it sounds like the oh, biggest thing uh you are trying to work on or need to work on is feeling judged and like your father's yeah. judgment constantly and that what you think others might be thinking or or judging you in in those ways is probably a big uh, thing that is ruled your whole entire life and now mm-hmm. even though he's gone the residual effects are still there and you, I guess the thing that you have to work on most is, is lowering that voice in your head. Cause that voice in your head isn't your, your voice. It's the voice of your dad, uh, that is mm-hmm. constantly there. So working on, uh, that will probably be the biggest thing. Are there some exercises that you're doing with your therapist to work on that?
0: Um, I've just been doing, well, I've been doing EMDR, but that's me. I've been working on things like the fear stuff. And then also the, um, the believing that uh, people don't like me. Um, But there's a different, there's a podcast that I listen to called unfuck your brain. um, And it's uh, by this woman named Carl Lowenthal. And she basically her, she's a life coach and she's like a, she went to Harvard and Yale and I mean, she's brilliant and she, Her whole thing is that um, your thoughts are what your problem is. It's not your your emotions because your thought comes first. So part of her whole thing is to help people free themselves from their critical inner voice and from beating themselves up over various things and perfectionism and stuff like that. So I've been working through a lot of stuff, a lot of her programs.
1: Is she the one that wrote the book uh, un unfuck Yourself?
0: something like that? No, 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 that's, that's somebody else. Okay, She has not written a book, although I think she, I think she mentioned on her podcast that she might be writing a book. Um, but she's really awesome. And anybody, anybody should check out her podcast. She's really great. Um, and she's totally, I mean, I say life coach, but she's not like the, a lot of life coaches are into like the law of attraction stuff. She's definitely not, (laughs) she's not into that. She's just about, um, you know the whole name of her podcast is "Unfuck Your Brain for Feminist Confidence," but it's—I mean—it's not just for women; it works for anybody. So, but she really, she really helps to work on like the critical inner voice and um, hyper vigilance and confirmation bias and fight or flight um, issues that are no longer useful that you you know learned in childhood and stuff like that.
1: So before we end our conversation here for people that were raised like you and uh, are not dealing with the uh, fallout of everything or are still in the process, what is the biggest uh, takeaway that uh, you want them to know from what you experienced?
0: Um, probably just that your feelings are valid and Cause I always grew up being invalidated and dismissed. Um, so you, you know, you internalize all of that and it's like, you know, when you try to stand up for yourself and then you feel guilty about it. Um, cause I've always had an issue with that, just that your feelings are valid, um, and you're not alone. And, um, you know, there are tools to help you move past that. Um, because I never thought I would get, out of that like hypervigilance and always being triggered by everything, but EMDR has really helped me to get over that, Um, so I would recommend EMDR to anybody. Um, Also, the book, um, there's two books by Pete Walker that um, he grew up in a family with, I think it was a narcissist father, and both of his books are about complex PTSD and working through that and moving past that, and one of them, they're both kind of like the same material, but one was written 20 years later and kind of expands on the previous one. So the, I think the later one is called complex PTSD um, from surviving to thriving. So I would definitely recommend that to anybody. um, And also that unfug your brain podcast. Um, But just, I mean, just talking about your issues and finding people who will listen to you. Um, you know, and your podcast is awesome because people, there's just not enough people talking about this kind of stuff and narcissistic abuse, I think is something that really just goes under the radar, especially when it's, um, sort of, it, it sort of falls into the paradigm of this is just the way that, um, you know, the world is and parents control their children or, you know, whatever it's, it's not normal. Cause I always thought, I always thought our family, we were a little bit weird, but I thought we were normal. And I was probably in my twenties when I realized that we were really not normal. So if you feel like something's wrong, talk to somebody. Well, if you feel like something's wrong, it definitely is.
1: (laughs) Well, Jenny, thank you very much for sharing your story today and being on the show. Uh, It was, it was a pleasure having you here and, I hope nothing but the best for everything, uh, in the future in your healing process. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, for everyone else out there, uh, thank you for listening and have a good night. And that was my conversation with Jenny. So I want to thank Jenny for being part of our show, for being part of the community and being part of your lives and my life now. So hopefully I speak to you before this episode comes out so we can catch up a tiny bit. But before we leave here today, let me just say, come join our Facebook group which is different from our Facebook page. And you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash Narcissist Apocalypse to join. The group is fantastic so far. Everyone's getting along. Everyone's sharing their experiences. Everyone's helping each other and lifting each other up. Also, for our Letters to the Narcissist episode... We have a voicemail recorder on our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. It's on the right side of the page, floating around, hard to miss. We're accumulating them for Volume 2 of that episode. You press on the button, you record. records up to five minutes. Record once, twice, three times, as many times as you want. So send those in so we can get that episode recorded and I can see Melissa. And we're going to have a great time. I th- Hopefully we'll see her next week. And now, that is it. Be well and bye for now.